Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. And uh, as you're coming back to your seats, here we go. There we go. All right. We're, we're working. All right. Well, good morning. My name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being with us, especially if you're, uh, if you're, if you're visiting with us. Um, thank you for, for taking this Sunday on this, this holiday weekend to, to join us. I hope your time uh, with us is a blessing. Uh, and I, I hope it's a blessing because I'm going to start off here with something. I'm going to say something controversial. Yeah. All right. Are you ready? Okay. I think we need less Christmas. <laughs> we have some Grinches in the house. <laughs> so less, I think we need less Christmas. Now, so before, okay, apparently some of you are with me, um, but before anyone else, you know, shouts me down with bah humbug, um, I, I, let me clarify. I want to, I, I got to prove my Christmas credentials here a little bit. Okay. So I'm, I am the biggest Christmas dork that you will ever meet. Okay, that got that, that, so some people are okay with that. Okay, so all right, we're, we're we're a divided house here today. No, I'm the biggest Christmas dork you'll ever meet. I I because I, I do it all. I have anyone remember remember this the uh, the uh, ugly Christmas uh yeah. I got that um I got ugly Christmas sweaters. I even have like the musical neckties. I got. Everything, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I do have the, the whole nine yards. I um, I can quote the Grinch stole Christmas from memory. I can. Uh, I, I do agree with Buddy the Elf that um, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Yes. <laughs> um, so when when I say that we need that we need less Christmas, um, I'm I'm not looking for any less Christmas spirit. Whew. We got all sorts of feedback here. This is just going to keep everyone awake, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so I think what I mean when I say we need less Christmas, what I mean is maybe not so much of all the, the less of all the, the, the fun Christmassy things. It's more that I think we need more of something else. A little less Christmas holly jolly and a little bit more Advent hope. Advent hope. See, you're, you're probably familiar with the term, with the term Advent, um, even if you're fuzzy on the details. Uh, you know, Advent wreaths, Advent candles, Advent calendars. My kids have like those chocolate Advent calendars that they're like, every day they're like, can we open it up yet and start eating the chocolate day by day, countdown to Christmas. <laughs> but long before Advent was incorporated into our Christmas festivities. Uh, Advent was a liturgical season of the church calendar in its own right. Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. And historically, Advent was set aside not just for preparation for Christmas, but as preparation and contemplation and longing, anticipation for the second coming of Christ. That's what the word Advent means. Advent means coming or arrival. And so and now, this, that might be news to you, because even, even I, I grew up in a, in a liturgical tradition that emphasized Advent, um, but I still somehow missed growing up what it was all about. Um, so as a kid, I knew that Advent meant anticipating the arrival of Christmas, um, uh, the arrival of Christ 
Um, but somehow to me, that got all just kind of tangled up in the omnipresent Christmas season. And so I thought that Advent meant that we sort of, that we're anticipating Christmas, that we're anticipating the birth of Jesus, sort of play acting like he hasn't come yet. And so Advent for me and maybe for lots of us became yet just another sentimental Christmas tradition, a gentle reminder of the baby Jesus um, and not any more significant than a manger scene or a chocolate calendar. But that's not historically what Advent is. And in recent years, I have been coming back to Advent and finding in Advent a much deeper, richer meaning. Because if Advent is not so much about the first arrival of the baby Jesus in the manger, but instead is about the second arrival of Jesus in glory, that changes the whole perspective as we approach this Christmas season. See, Advent isn't about looking back to say, oh, baby Jesus. Advent is about looking forward with hope and saying something is going to change here. Jesus is coming soon. So Advent does not commemorate the first arrival of Jesus in a manger. Advent anticipates the second arrival of Jesus in glory. Advent is about hope. It's the hope that light is going to break across the horizon of this darkened world. It's hope that the endless winter of this fallen world is going to be swept away by Aslan on the move. It means he's coming and things are going to change. Advent is about hope. And so that's, that's what our series this season is built, is built around. Advent as hope. And so to, before we start, before we even get to the text that we're going to look at today, uh, we need to define what hope is. We need to define what hope is because, because the way that we use the word hope in kind of our everyday conversations um, is actually very different than the way the Bible uses the word hope. And that, that's okay. We just need to make sure we've got our definitions straight. Because the way that you and I usually use the word hope when we're talking is sort of as a, like a fingers crossed, maybe this good thing will happen. You know, like, I, I hope I get a pony for Christmas. That's, what, that's probably what my daughter Zoe wants. She actually, she wants a unicorn. She hopes she gets a unicorn for Christmas. Or I hope that we finally have a white Christmas this year. Right? This, this is how we use the word hope. It's sort of like, hold, like fingers crossed, maybe this good, exciting thing will happen. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't control the weather. Maybe we'll get a white Christmas. I'm looking forward to that possibility. That's how we use the word hope. And that's okay. We just need to understand that that is not how the Bible uses the word hope. When you read in the Bible and you see hope there, it's not what it means, the fingers crossed sort of optimism. In the Bible, hope is, and this is the, the big idea here, hope is the confident expectation of some future promised good. It's the confident expectation that this good thing that has been promised will, in fact, happen. So far different than, I hope I get a pony, hope is, say, the college student 
struggling under the weight of finals, but knowing Christmas break is coming. Hope, see, grabs hold of the future and says, this is coming and I, I can hold out for this. I, I can endure for that. Like I got four days of finals and then break. Hope is the confident expectation of some good thing that is coming. And so when we come to today's text, and we come to all of these Advent sermons that we're going to do, we need to bring the, bring the right definition of hope. Hope is this confident expectation of something in the future. And so with our Advent series looking forward to the return of of Christ to his second coming in glory. That's going to be our emphasis this holiday season. Today, today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what might not seem to be a Christmas text at first glance, and see the hope of Jesus' return. The hope of Jesus' return, not fingers crossed, maybe this will all work out, but a confident expectation that Jesus himself has said, I am coming soon. And what that means for us as we are holding out that hope, even in the darkness. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And what's, what's going on here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that the, the Thessalonians are, are a bit confused by some stuff. Because Paul, Paul had been here at the church, but he had had to leave early. He didn't get to finish his kind of 101 discipleship class, and they missed a couple really important classes. And one of the things that they were wrestling with is that people in their congregation, loved ones, were dying. And they're like, hold on, what's up with this? We thought that Jesus conquered the grave. Didn't we just sing about Jesus, our living hope, and, and the grave has no claim on me, and yet our loved ones are dying? Paul, what, what does that mean? And so right, right off the bat here in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we see that we actually have a crisis of hope. Because I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. If, if, if you're like me, you just kind of sit around and think about things. Hope... You know, hope is a positive thing, right? The expectation of future good. But hope actually implies that something is wrong right now. That's sort of just contained in what hope means. So you're looking forward to something good, but there's something bad right now. Like nobody, nobody sits on the beach drinking a margarita hoping for summer. Because <laughs> you've already got it. It's, it's there. You're hoping for summer when it's five below and dark and cold outside. Romans, Romans 8.24, in fact, says, says hope that is seen is, is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he sees? In other words, like, hope is something that I don't have yet. And so the hope of Advent begins with the acknowledgement that something is wrong. That, in fact, it's not all peace and joy and holly jolly most wonderful time of the year. There's a, a great book um, by, um, by Fleming Rutledge just called, entitled Advent, a series of Advent devotions and thoughts. Really, a really good, great, stirring book. And, and she writes this. Um, Fleming Rutledge writes this. She says, she says, Advent begins in the dark. 
Advent begins in the dark. The meaning of Christmas, and here's why I'm going to kind of insist on it's Advent this year, <laughs> Advent. The meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. See, if we just skip straight to holly jolly, we'll miss, we'll miss what, the, what Christmas is about and we'll miss where our hope is pointing. Advent begins in the dark. And so the darkness here that the Thessalonians were dealing with was the darkness of death itself. You know, on, on the next slide here, here's, here's Paul as he's bringing the letter to a close. He kind of starts this one last topic. He says, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is just a Greek euphemism for death. Kind of like we say they passed away because that's a little bit softer than saying they died. But that, that's what he's talking about here. He said, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Here, here's the issue. There's a crisis of hope in the face of death. Because this is what they were wrestling with. It, it, what they were wrestling with, it looked like death is winning. Look around. It still looks like death is winning. And so the Thessalonians, and maybe sometimes us as well, we wrestle with, like, we're, we're a resurrection people. We believe Jesus is alive. We believe he's our living hope. But look around, and it looks like death is winning. And not just you know, in an abstract way, in a way that hits close to home and can, can hit close to home harder at the holidays, right? That, that loved ones die, and despite all of our songs about Easter, they stay dead. And sure, Jesus' tomb is empty, but ours are full. And so the Thessalonians' question is, what's the good of an empty tomb if all of ours are full? Right? And, and listen, so, and I, don't mean, I don't mean that flippantly. Many of us have lost loved ones this year. We buried our niece this summer. And many of you are grieving the losses in your families. And there's, there's a seat at that Thanksgiving table this week that was empty. And so this crisis of hope that the Thessalonians were wrestling with, I, I, I relate to it, and maybe you do. Maybe for you, that's not just a rhetorical question, but it's the cry rising out of the anguish of your soul. What's the good of an empty tomb if all of ours are full? And so the song that we were just singing is like ash in your mouth as you grieve the loss of loved ones. What's the good of an empty tomb? Didn't make any difference here. You know, it's, it's okay to ask that question because Advent takes a fearless inventory of the darkness and asks the hard questions. And so we don't have to be afraid of the hard questions because as, we, as we're going to keep reading here, we do have a reason for hope.
despite all evidence to the contrary, despite the darkness seeming unending, despite, despite the winter seeming so cold, yet there is still a reason for hope. So let's keep reading here. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, there's a little parenthesis here. The goal is not to somehow quash grief or get around it as if we could do that. Those of you who've lost loved ones know there is no going around grief. There is only going through it. The goal is that even in the grief, there can still be hope. There can still be a confident expectation of future good. And here's, here's the reason Paul lays out. Verse 14, he says, For because, because since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, hope is, hope is a confident expectation for the future. But the first thing we need to see is that hope is rooted in the past. See, hope is not just a naive, delusional optimism. Hope actually says, on, on the basis of this past certainty... I can have confidence for this future good. And we see here in verse 14, the, the, the confidence, the foundation of hope, Paul says, is that Jesus died and rose again. There really was a cross. He really did hang on the cross in the place of sinners. He really did stand in our place to take our sin, to take the judgment that we deserve. He really did die there on that cross. He really was buried in that tomb, and he really did walk out alive again. He really did conquer death. He really is our living hope. The tomb is, in fact, empty, and Jesus really is alive. Which means, despite all that evidence to the contrary, death is not winning. And even when we're standing at the, the graveside of a loved one, death is not running the show anymore. That's the past certainty. Paul says, because we believe this, Jesus died and rose again. That still leaves the question, of course, right, of if, well, his grave is empty, but ours are full. And so now we see what that past certainty has to do with a future hope. Because Jesus died and rose, God will bring with him, bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. What does that mean? Now, we need to be precise here um, because it's very easy, I, I think, for, for some reason in our modern evangelicalism, it's very easy to put our hope here in the, in the wrong place. And, and I have to say, nearly every funeral I've been to gets this verse wrong, gets this verse backwards. Nearly every funeral I've gone to puts our hope something like this. Because Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, our loved one is with him in heaven. Like every funeral I've been to, that's the hope. Now... That's true. 
That is true, and praise God, it is true. That if your trust is in Jesus and you die, God holds you even through death. You are with him. Paul talks about this being, being away from the body and at home with the Lord. That is a wonderful hope. That's just not what he's saying here. He's pointing us to something else here. It's not that because Jesus died and rose, we get to go to heaven when we die. The hope, look, look carefully here. He says, because Jesus died and rose, God will bring those who have died with him. The hope is not that we go to heaven, but that in the end, heaven comes here. God will bring with Jesus those who have died. When Jesus returns, heaven comes here. This is the great hope of the New Testament. This is the great hope founded on the resurrection, that the end goal of the gospel is not that I float away to a cloud, but that one day the resurrected Christ comes back and brings heaven with him. Keep reading, and you'll see Paul unpack this. In verse 14, he says, So through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. See, the, the, the Thessalonians were, were wondering. They're like, they're like well, so what happens to this person who dies? Are they, are they just gone? Like, what What happens? And he says, no, we're, we're going to see them again. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and those dead in Christ, those loved ones who have died in Christ, says, will rise first. First in line. Verse 16, this, this picture of the triumphant return of Christ breaking back into history. See, there's, Paul describes it as three loud noises. Not exactly sure what all these noises sound like, but you see the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet. In, it, throughout the Old Testament, the sound of a trumpet was associated with the presence of God. So it's like God himself showing up, breaking into history, and it's loud because so the, the Thessalonians were wondering, they were like, did we, did we miss this, Paul? Like, I know I slept through that last discipleship class. Like, did, did Jesus come back already? Did we miss it somehow? And Paul's point here is when Jesus returns, it will be loud, it will be obvious. See, the first time at Christmas, Jesus came incognito. The second time, there will be no mistaking him. The first time it was a silent night. The second time it will split the skies and all will see him. And Paul says on that day when Jesus splits the skies, he says the dead in Christ will rise first. See, today our graves are full, but not for long. Every casket has an expiration date. 
The expiration date is this great day. When Jesus, that day when Jesus breaks open the skies, he will also break open our graves. And the same Easter resurrection that happened to Jesus will happen to all of his people. The, the hope, again, not disembodied souls floating up to heaven. The end of this, that, that's sort of the intermission. The end of the story is new, indestructible bodily life, raised in power and glory, just like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll, we'll get to after Christmas as we resume and finish up our study in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits, which is the celebration of the very beginning, the very, uh, the very beginning of the harvest, the first crop as proof that the whole harvest is coming. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus' resurrection, Easter, was not just a one-off event. Look, Jesus beat death, yay. No, Jesus' resurrection was the first domino. It was the first fruits. It was the first of many of all of God's people to follow out of the grave just like Jesus. What happened to Jesus will happen to us. He rose physically, we will rise physically. He rose in glory, we will rise in glory. The end of the story, the hope, is that in the end, Easter comes for us. That's what the return of Christ is. The return of Christ is Easter coming for us. The skies split, the trumpet sounds, the dead rise. And then verse 17, and then we who are alive... Who are, who are left, those who are still alive at his coming, and may it, maybe it will be today. Let it be. But we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And now we need to get this right too. It's just like we can sort of get the hope wrong in verse 14. We can get some of the directions wrong here in verse 17. Because at first read through, you read this, will be caught, the dead in Christ will rise and all of us will be caught up together, meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. At first read through, that sounds like a sort of like an I'll fly away, oh glory scenario. Jesus whisks us away into the clouds. But two things we need to see here. First is get the direction of our hope right. The end of the story is heaven comes here. It's Jesus comes here. The second thing is that word meet. That we will meet the Lord in the air. That, that word in, in English, meet, can mean, can mean a lot of different things. You can meet a friend for coffee. You can meet somebody on the street corner. This word in Greek is actually a very particular technical term. It's not the normal word for meat. This, this Greek word, apontesis, has the specific meaning of welcoming an honored dignitary and escorting them in. It's a very particular word. It, so it maybe would be better translated welcome. That might better capture the, the, the nuance in the Greek 
And this, this term would be something that the Thessalonians would have been very familiar with. Thessalonica was a Roman colony, which meant it would occasionally play host to the Roman emperor. And when the Roman emperor, when Caesar would come and visit the city, all of the important people in the town would go out to meet him. There'd be like a formal procession, go out to meet the emperor and escort him in triumphal procession into the city. That's what this word meet means. In fact, it's only used three times in the New Testament because it's a very specific technical word. And each time it's used this way. One is in Acts 28. Remember, at the very end of Acts, remember Paul, is, he, he's, been, he's being brought to Rome. And when he lands in Italy, the elders of the church in Rome come to the harbor to meet him and accompany him to Rome. Sort of their like, sign of honoring him. The, the great apostle Paul is here. We're going to go meet him and escort him to the city. The other time it's used is in Matthew 25. Jesus' parable of the wedding feast, which itself is Jesus telling a story, a picture of his return. And he tells the story of the bridesmaids who are waiting for the groom to arrive. And he's, they're, they're keeping their lamps ready because it's getting late. They don't know when the bridegroom's going to show up. And eventually, finally, the groom comes, and the bridesmaid's job, and that, the way they did weddings back then, the bridesmaid's job was to go out and meet him and accompany him into the feast. So that's exactly what's happening here in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's not a picture of Jesus whisking his church away to a disembodied heaven. That's not the end of the story. This is the church from all ages, resurrected and re-embodied and rising to welcome the king as he returns, accompanying him, not trotting off away to heaven, but accompanying him here. The final destination is here. It's heaven coming here. The saints come marching in here. The king takes his power and begins to reign Evil is swept off the table. The fire of judgment scours creation clean and makes all things new. Jesus' resurrection opened his grave, and then it opens our grave, and at last it drags the whole groaning, broken creation out of the grave with him. All things new, and Easter comes for everything. And so, Paul says, we will be forever with the Lord. See, what, what he's describing in detail is what Revelation 21 pictures. The end of the story, Revelation 21, the Apostle John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, all the people of God coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will be Emmanuel again. And on that day, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, 
For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the end of the story. This is the return that sets all things right. This is Easter coming for us. If I can have the, the worship team, the worship team come and join me up here. Paul says, so we will always be with the Lord. On that day, he will be at last fully Emmanuel again. More, I believe, dare I say, than he was the first time. Because Jesus coming incognito, coming in humility and lowliness to a cross, just him. But one day his presence, his glory will fill creation. The prophet Habakkuk says, like waters fill the seas. And what we glimpse at Christmas and what we experience as a flicker of the Holy Spirit warming our hearts with his presence, one day we will have in fullness. And we will be alive and we will be free. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, we can, we can make a fearless inventory of the darkness because we have hope. We have a confident expectation of future good. See, we can, we can celebrate Christmas. We can celebrate Advent regardless of our circumstances. Because that story of an occupied manger ends with an empty tomb. And because of that empty tomb, the end of our story is an empty tomb also. And so we pray and we sing and we hope. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. He, he shall, he will, it is certain, he will come to us and he will be Emmanuel again. Let's, let's stand. You know, this, this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's another one of those songs that we sing at Christmas, but this too, just like Joy to the World that we sang at the beginning, is actually an Advent song. It's actually about the return of Christ. And from depths of hell, he will save his people. From depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory or the grave. This is our hope. So we will sing, we will rejoice, because Church Emmanuel will come, and he will be Emmanuel again. I'm take all my Christmas stuff here, and, and then let's sing.